0: You've arrived. Welcome to the Save What You Love podcast. I'm your host, Mark Titus. Today's episode, we get to hang out with Kyle Gleason. Kyle is a good friend of mine and a Bristol Bay fisherman who just experienced the greatest return in Bristol Bay of wild sockeye salmon on record ever, 65.5 million sockeye. He also had and just epic adventure with his two sons up in the Bristol Bay system, catching trout after his fishing season. And we talk about all of that, and oh, by the way, Kyle's brother is named Steve Gleason. You may have heard of him. He's an NFL legend, played for the New Orleans Saints, has been the advocate for ALS for the last decade, and because of this work, won the Congressional Gold Medal. That's a big deal. What's even more of a big deal is the heartfelt connection that we all have to Wild Salmon from Bristol Bay, and we get into all of that in the conversation. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd like to ask you to consider to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps our exposure and helps get this show out into the world. Also, writing a review in your own words helps a bunch, too. Lastly, Wild Salmon to your doorstep, Flash Frozen from Bristol Bay avaswild.com. That's save spelled backwards, wild.com. Order online and it'll be at your door right away and you can get a monthly subscription to it. Enjoy the show with Kyle and we'll see you down the trail. How do
1: down, how do you say what you love? You're
0: getting tough. Kyle Gleason, welcome. Where are you coming to us from today?
1: I am coming to you from uh, I'll call it my second home in Fairfax, California. Cool. So that would,
0: if it's a second, then there would be a first necessitated by that. So where would you call the first home?
1: Well, uh, I just got back from Alaska. So mm-hmm. uh, I was able to spend three months in Alaska this year. And um, I certainly feel at home there. So uh, yeah, that's yeah. how I'll phrase it.
0: Yeah, brother. I, I, I certainly know that feeling as didn't, well. Didn't you just um, get back? Yeah, I did. I was up in Bristol Bay, filming uh, a bit, and uh, more on that later. But um, yeah, it, uh, it, I feel home when I'm there, and it's uh, it's good to be home with my wife and my pups uh, here in Seattle. But yeah, there's a there's a yearning in my heart for that place that's never fully quelled until I'm there. So um, I get it. I'm gonna. I want to dig into your season and to Alaska and all of that stuff that we share a great affinity for here in a minute. But first off, I would love to hear your version of the story about how we met and then I'll fill in the details with my own (laughs) (laughs) little part of that. But I think it's a pretty entertaining story. So uh, why don't you give us the, the deets on how we met in the first place?
1: Yeah. So, um, must have been about nine years ago, maybe 10, but not eight, a little while. Um, A friend of mine who is a San Francisco resident, I live in the Bay Area um, most of the year when I'm not living in Alaska on my fishing boat, um, and he he hits me up and he's like, hey man, there's going to be a showing of a documentary at the San Francisco Aquarium about salmon we should go watch. And he was um he'd helped me write my business plan to buy my fishing boat. And so he had a vested interest in my life as a fisherman. Um so we we picked out the showtime and made it down there and I watched The Breach. And I was really, really impressed with the storytelling in that film. And afterwards there happened to be a QA with the um writer, director, producer Guy and uh, his name was Mark Titus, and so I started, you know, asking questions from people. Oh, why do you like salmon? And you know, how would you get into making film? And I was like, yeah. So, what do you know about Bristol Bay? <laughs> and uh, I asked, exactly. I, I asked a few questions, <laughs> and then you're like, hey man, I'd I'd love to talk more, but I gotta I gotta get to the airport. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I'll just drive you. Um, so mm-hmm. I ended up driving you to SFO so you could catch your flight out. And on the way, we discovered that we have many mutual friends and that we have similar similar backgrounds. Uh, we come, I would say that as far as like a cultural identity, I, I understand your, your cultural upbringing in like the 99th percentile as being similar to mine um even though you grew up in Seattle and I grew up in Spokane we're both kids from the northwest we're both kids that love to fish we're both kids that you know went to parochial schools and then went to catholic high schools and we have mutual friends and so it was there was an affinity of knowing when i when i met you that is
0: a rock solid encapsulation and why is it that the guys sitting in the front row who pepper me with the smart ass questions end up being some of my best friends like for the long haul i don't get it but that has been a similar trait and um that was wonderful yeah not the least of which what the uh, similarities anyway were your your brother uh steve was my brother-in-law Johannes big brother in their fraternity at Washington state university
1: yep.
0: and on and on and on. Yeah. It was just, it was spooky. And it was a cool. as well, right. Absolutely. Yeah. My wife's a coog My brother's a coog Her entire side of the family are all Cougs. Uh, so yeah, we got a lot of Cougar blood running around here. I'm, I'm, as you probably remember all mixed up man. I'm a duck who roots for the Huskies, who's married to a coog So, <laughs> you know, that's about a schizophrenic as it gets, but Anyway, um that is a uh a, another long story for another day, but um I would love to continue on with your journey now. And sure. if you could tell us just a bit about how you came into this work that you do in Bristol Bay. Like that's not something you just wake up one day and say, I'm going to go be a Bristol Bay commercial salmon fisherman. How how did you come into that work and what keeps you going? What keeps you sustained? throughout
1: that's a great question um the direct answer how i came into the work um i have a a very good friend and as a young man i met him in the bay area and he was a hotshot sailor racing boats on san francisco bay and somebody from a sailing community offered him a shot as a deckhand up in bristol bay and he took it and he ended up buying a boat And then when he bought a boat, he was like, Hey man, you got to see this thing. I know how much you love the water. So just come on and check it out. And two years later, I bought his boat from him when he bought a different boat. And uh, that's the the succinct version of it. Um, The long story is that I've been in love with water since I can remember. Um, You know, I, I grew up a very long ways from the ocean in Spokane. Um, but I remember a kid at being a child, like, you know, four five, six years old and, you know, like going to the Eagles health club spa thing with my dad, where he would go swim laps. And I would just play in the pool for hours and hours and hours. And I remember the lifeguard, you know, being like, Oh, there's that little fish again. Um, and then, you know, some of my most vivid early memories are of going fishing with my dad and uh, I, you know, I remember the first fish I caught over 12 inches, you know, I was seven years old. I caught a, a rainbow trout out of Sprague Lake and it was the one fish we caught all day that like broke the skunk. And as a child, I remember thinking, Oh, I want to be a Marine biologist when I grow up. And, um, I ended up, uh, choosing not to pursue athletics in college. I come from a pretty renowned athletic family. And instead I went and followed my heart, which led me to Peru via some contacts I had at my high school. And I met a priest down there and he said, Hey, while you're in this country, you need to take a look around. And I learned how to surf while I was in Peru. And suddenly my love for the ocean just kind of overtook my life. So, Then it was like, okay, I'm going to follow my desires and I wanted to live near the ocean. So I started doing construction work on yachts, like yacht repair stuff, yacht carpentry, restoration work. And in that pursuit of the water and the closeness to the water, I met my friend in that community who sailed, who offered me the gig in Bristol Bay. And uh, to have somebody offer me the opportunity to make money fishing which is something I've just been so passionately fond of my entire life. Do I love to fish more than I love to surf? I don't know, but nobody's paid me any money to be a surfer yet. So, (laughs) um, you know, the opportunity to make money fishing, I was like, sure, man, sign me up. I love this idea. Um, and I went to knack -Knack. I was curious, but I was also super motivated to get up to Alaska because I knew if I got there, I could bang around and do a little bit of fly fishing so regardless of whatever happened with the commercial pursuit of commercial fishing i um i knew i'd be able to sneak off and catch a fish or two on the fly. And so I went to knack knack and I remember like being in knack knack as a greenhorn fisherman and I'd work really hard and get my jobs done. And then I'd trudge across the tundra and find the lake where I could fly fish for pike and I'd catch all the pike I could behind red salmon cannery. And I'd hitchhike up to King salmon Creek and I'd, you know, catch little rainbows in King salmon Creek. And, you know, in between openers and Iggagick, I remember like trying to floss sockeye, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like, so, uh, Yeah. I've, um, I've always really loved fishing. And, um, so that's how I got into commercial fishing and, and, you know, it's, it's just another beautiful thing for me to pursue with all of my heart. Um, you know, I'm also a general contractor and when I meet contractors that do better than me, I'm like, Hey, good for you, man. And when I meet fishermen that do better than me, I want to sink their boats. (laughs) So, like, it's, I can honestly say it's like the one. Like a true fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, so, it's fishing is the one thing that it just takes all of my soul, you know, in my pursuit of it. Mm-hmm. It's the one thing I want to be the best at. And I know that I never will. And that keeps me very humble. Um, You know, one of my approaches as a fisherman is to uh, always have a friend who's better than you at whatever it is. You know, in the commercial fishing world, is that a guy in my radio group or a girl in my radio group? Because there's some girls in my radio group that kick my butt. Um, But, uh, you know, is that to have somebody in my radio group that knows you gashik better than me or the noosh or upriver stuff in the queejack you know as a as a bass fisherman you know it's like oh this guy's really good at crankbaits or you know and as a fly fisherman oh here's a steelhead junkie and he knows it better than me and uh you know in all of the different pursuits of fishing that i have there's really only like one spot that i'm like i might be the best guy in the world at that but uh in all the other places there's so many better than
0: i am All right, man. You Okay, you lit up about 15 lights. I don't know if we're going to hit all of them, um, because I do want to keep this moving along, and we're going to come back to that one spot for sure, that you are the man, and I'm pretty sure I know where that is. But um, look, I talk to all kinds of people on this show that are doing incredible things in the world, Um, people like Olivia Watkins, who is the president of Black Farmer Fund, empowering African-Americans to... Uh, take ownership of farmland again and wow. really uh yeah move forward and but you know i can't tell you how many people have said what you said which is man i just i'm in love with water i've been in love with water my whole life and that really is a a common thread and and it's been in particular water but even more so i think just that love and you know clearly duh, it's the name of the show save what you love but that that's the thing. I think people that stick it out and want it to be a part of their life for the rest of their lives. It's right in here. It's based in your heart. And, you know, to that point about fishing and the eternal mystery, I loved what you said about, you know, I'm never going to be the best. And, um, there's always something to keep coming back for, man. I'm simpatico with that. Exactly. On all fronts. Like, you know, I I love to fish, and I, I think I'm a pretty decent fisherman, and I know I'm never going to be the best. Um, and that mystery under the surface, and that challenge about uh, wanting to be good at your craft, yeah, it keeps me coming back over and over and over again. Yeah, and so yeah, I mean, look, again, these connection points are are incredible,
1: and. Well, one thing also that I, I love going back to water is like, I think water is one of the most basic ways that we can really feel connected to something that's greater than ourselves, Right. Because Absolutely. all of these lakes that go into these rivers that go into these streams that go into this ocean, like it's all going into that one body of water. You know, yes. and when you're, when I'm in that water, I really truly feel my connection to the whole, I yes. feel how, powerless i am like i feel this like pardon me that no matter what when i'm in the water i'm a little bit surrendered like i'm a little bit surrendered to the fact that i'm not in control right and the fun of it is knowing you're not in control and trying to understand what's happening around you at such a high level that you can be in tune with this rhythm that's that's truly greater than you and and that is that you're you're a part of it's you're you're a part of it when you're choosing to participate with it but it's like the hidden world you know like what happens under the water and on the water it's like the you know the, the earth is covered by what 70 percent water but we mm-hmm. know so little about that 70 percent because we're terrestrial beings and mm-hmm. uh you know for me it's like when i get to when i get to be in the water on the water either as a surfer where i'm timing the swell and catching the wave and and when i'm doing it perfectly you know like i'm all the way inside of a barrel and i'm looking out inside of a tube of water breathing air riding a board on a piece of moving energy you know like that's a it's a pretty in the moment state and You know, and the same thing when I'm like analyzing water and looking at a rip in the middle of the quejack, going, Oh my gosh, the fish are on the east side of the rip, or they're in the dirty water instead of the clean water, and I lay my net out and suddenly my, my net lights up because I'm able to see the secret language that the natural world is is speaking to me and understand it. And I guess it's the part that breaks my heart is the part of me that fails to understand when the language is being spoken right like because i feel like mm-hmm. the language of understanding with mm-hmm. water is always there for us if we are perceptive enough even if we, we can try really hard to hear it but we don't always perceive it and then we see those that understand it better than us and we go oh man you know and and then we can attempt i can attempt to you know try to learn try to become more fluent in that language of water understanding but um, it will forever leave me with something to strive for in a way that will humble my soul. Yeah, man, absolutely. I uh, surrender is what you said, and it I is. don't know if that makes sense.
0: A, <laughs> it makes perfect sense to me, and <laughs> that surrender part is is what I'm really you know attaching to. It's. I, have been, I'm going to gush about this for, for some time to come here, but uh, my buddy Russ Ricketts, who was on a previous show, uh, got me into river snorkeling and, um, I 100% identify with that surrender and that awe and that wonder by just dipping my head below the water and this stretch of water I've driven by, or I've walked by a hundred times, all of a sudden has gone from two dimensions into three dimensions. And I am surrounded by fish that I never knew were there. Uh, by an intact ecosystem on the Snoqualmie River with uh, crawdads and caddisfly and sculpin and whitefish and rainbows and brook trout and cutthroat. And I'm just in heaven. Mm. And you guys I have love- whitey's in the Snoqualmie? Yeah, absolutely. Big. Wow. There's love- one There's one that lives in this hole that's like, I swear to God,
1: he's 10 pounds. She's 10 pounds. Yeah. It's
0: just this massive whitefish.
1: I love white like- fish, man. They're so ancient, yeah. like the archaicness of yeah. them. Every time I see a whitefish or catch one, I'm always like, "This the ancientness of that fish." I have so much reverence for. They, they, yeah, they are ancient, and they uh, in the water when you're
0: in the water with them, and the the lights coming through just so they sparkle. They sparkle oh, with this gold kind of glint, and they're they're gonna get poo pooed as sport fish. Uh, people that eat them love them, yeah, and. You're right. They're ancient and they're kind of wise, and they just kind of hang around the bottom and don't don't expend too much energy and come up when they need to. It's they're beautiful, and um, and you you know, man, the poetry you just laid on us with looking down that pipe, riding aboard in the water, cons- you know, encompassed by water but still breathing air as a terrestrial being, and I I hope I don't get too decrepit. Yeah, you know, fast enough so I can still learn to get sort of proficient. You're like on the pro circuit on surfing. I've done it once or twice in yeah. in Hawaii. A friend of mine, Rob, got me up on a board, and even that was like miraculous. And yes, all of this is poetry in motion, in liquid form. I mean, David James Duncan talks about it with the the um, ocean producing the clouds coming off the ocean and into the mountains and the earth connecting with the sky and the love that exists there. And it's just, it's so true, man.
1: And it's all connected. Well, Dan, oh, I, can I interject quickly? A yeah, dear friend of mine said to me once when I got to Nack and we were, you know, we're going out to fish, right. And I was a greenhorn. My friend Tyler Rasmussen says to me, he's like, God, I love this place. It's where weather is made.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And easy to see that when you're standing in the middle of it. Let's, let's, let's hover right there. So we're talking about Bristol Bay and you rattled off a bunch of names that I'm familiar with because I've spent a little bit of time there. Uh, Most of our listeners are not familiar with. So you you were talking about you, and Quijack and, uh, and can you give us a little bit of a lay of the land, of the landscape there? What are you talking about when you're talking about all these different names?
1: Sure. So there's, um, you know, there's four primary districts where commercial fishermen fish. And the four primary are the Nushigak, the Kuijak, Naknak, which is kind of two in one, um, Igigik, and Yugashik. And so, uh, as a commercial fisherman, when the season opens, the state of Alaska has come up with this great system where they say, Hey, you can fish in any one of these districts. There's also a fifth district, Togiak, um, but you can't fish in Togiak if you're going to fish in any of the other districts. And it has a smaller run and it's pretty well managed by the first nation people that are there. Um, So for the most part, visitors like myself, um, you know, we fish in one of these other four major districts. And so the state of Alaska says, okay, Kyle, you can go fish, but you have to tell us where you're fishing. And oh, by the way, if you want to change rivers, you have to sit out for 48 hours. Which means that river that you choose to fish in, whether it's the Nushagak District or the Kuijak District or the Igigig District or the Ugashik District, you really want to make sure you're making the choice that's best for you because missing the wrong two days of fishing can be very, a very costly thing. So our season is so short. I mean, my boat is in the water for usually less than 45 days in a season and uh you know it's it, and that pursuit of those fish in that time makes up a significant amount of my livelihood so choose wisely friends but and each river system also has a very yeah. unique you know has a unique feel and character to it the new Shigak district is is pretty massive and wide open and the mountains on the west side of bristol bay you know, they really come down to the water and you can feel the presence of the mountains when you're in that district. Whereas if you're over in the Naknequijak district, it's a lot more, uh, much more of a a wide open tundra flat. You know, it's, it's like the greatest part of the basin that makes up Bristol Bay. Um, and you know, Igigik has, uh, Bacharoff, I think is the pronunciation on it but it has the backdrop of Mount Bacharoff. so you see nothing really when you're out fishing ex- except for you know like brown tundra flats and then there's a big volcano in the background and then you get down to Ugashik and every time I get down to Ugashik which is the southernmost district the closest to the Aleutian Islands to me it feels like when I spent time on the west coast of Ireland and you know there's there's beautiful rolling hills in the southern part of the Ugashik district and um and it's it's quite a bit greener than the Naknek, kwijak and Igigik areas. Um, and uh, you could spend a lifetime fishing each one of these districts and still be sh- lacking several lifetimes of knowledge. There's so much to learn. I
0: know exactly what you mean about the uh, the land, and um, it's not not about the fishing. I've only done a little bit of commercial fishing up there. Uh, myself, but uh, the land, you feel like, you know, I spent a lot of time in Naknek and King Salmon and on the Naknek river and then over on Lake Aleknegek and in the wood tick Chick system. Beautiful. We'll never touch it. And I plan on, I plan on being up there somehow, some way every year for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, and we'll never touch even those, those, just those two things. Yep. But again, to you know clarify that you were talking about the Ugashic, and the Kweejak and the Nushege, those are all
1: districts referring to the rivers that yeah. flow into the Bristol Bay. Into Bristol Bay. And each yep. district has, you know, like for example, the, the rivers that are inside of the Kweejak, Well, you've got, you know, you've got the Kweejak river, the Naknek river, the Alec, or, uh, Alegnagek river, you know, I mean like in, in the Nushe, you have the wood and the Agushik and the snake. And I mean, you know, and Igigig is, Igigik and Ugashik are mostly just one, but even Igigik has a king salmon river, and so does Ugashik. You know, so there's there's uh, there's the the main river mouth that you know we're fishing around, but from that there's ten thousand arteries going into each one of those, which are all going into Bristol Bay. And uh, you know, one thing that I try to do as a commercial fisherman, you know, I try to stay and get up into the the little creeks at the end of it all. And, you know, cause I'm catching these bright fish as they're coming in to spawn, but there's so much more that's happening after us, you know, like there's, like if you, if I think about what those fish have survived to get, then go ahead and get caught in my net, you know, how many predators have pursued them, salmon, sharks, seals, birds, you name it, you know, and then they get past us. And then you realize how many bears they have to evade and how many bald eagles they have to evade evade, and wolves and then set net sites. And, you know, I mean, and still so many of those fish are spawning right now. It's incredible. It's really incredible. Uh, So dear
0: listener, I encourage you, we're going to put a a link up in the show notes uh, that'll have a link to a Google map uh, of Bristol Bay. And I encourage you to take a look at that and, kind of visualize what uh, Kyle's talking about. And uh, you, it, it is incredible the amount of braids of, of water that are moving through this whole area. And it, it is inexhaustible. You can't even do it in an entire human lifetime. Let's focus now um, on this season. Uh, this season was exceptional um, for a lot of reasons. But most importantly, it seems that the numbers were un unbelievable again yeah can you tell us about the unique nature of this season how, how did it go for you and um you know how does that how does that blend into the absolutely sacred unique nature of of this incredible place on earth
1: so we had more fish come back to bristol bay this year than any other year um, and in an incredibly humbling fact, I also caught the least amount of fish I've caught since my greenhorn skipper season. So, uh, you know, as a commercial fisherman, usually you're supposed to say, yeah, the biggest run ever. And I caught the most fish and I'm like, ah, eh. <laughs> um, and a lot of those fish are in the Nushagak, and there's an interesting thing, um, you basically in tw- I think it was 2018 was the last time there was a mass- massive new year and uh 2018 2019 but you know basically that brood class that came to the newoshigak and was about a 30 million fish run um it's their kids essentially that just came back again um, and there was another roughly 30 million fish run in the newoshigak um so if you take away the prosperity of the new then suddenly this season is not quite as amazing as, as we might think, because it was so concentrated in that, in that river system. So there is a one, it's great to hear, Hey, largest run ever. Uh, there's some things that I think about as a fisherman. Um, and I might not be going exactly where you want me to here, Mark, but please forgive me. Um, there's some things that I think about here as a fisherman and, and, I you know, the new in sh- that district and those those systems, especially the wood, which is getting a lot of fish, they're producing a lot of uh, the brood class that are um, one year in the river and then two years in the ocean. And so it's a it's a, a pretty short return cycle. Um, and one thing that we're starting to see less and less of is the variety in the age classes. Um And, you know, I'm just, Hey, I'm going to say I'm not a fisherman or sorry. I am just a fisherman. I'm not a biologist. I'm, you know, but that's one thing that I wonder about is like, we're getting more and more fish in this one, two age cycle. Is that something we should be paying attention to? Um, I don't know the answer to that, but that's uh, like, that's my, the one thing that I go, Oh, okay. Well, should I, should I be concerned? Um, and then uh, the other side of the coin is we'll shoot 60. What was it? Would they come in at 63, 66 million. This year was uh, the, the last number that I saw was 5 million. Yeah, 65.5 million, 65 and a half million salmon. And I, man, what, you know, like I wish I could say that it, it was like, Oh, what a year for me. It wasn't. Um, I left the noosh <laughs> and too early. And I had friends that had the season of their lifetime. And I heard stories of like, Oh man, dude, we were just trying to get our nets in. Um, and I, I, I didn't have that experience. I had an experience fishing in Igigik and mostly in Igigik where we were expecting the run to show up and feeling like it never quite came and Igigik came in 4 million fish under its forecast so in the slice of abundance where i was we actually spent most of the season in a feeling of scarcity and understanding you know our brothers and sisters over in the noosh we're nailing them and we're going oh man we really maybe should have made a different choice um and that's fishing man <laughs> fishing. <laughs> every type of fishing yeah it,
0: it always experiences that you know and um the big picture I'm hearing from you, though, is about diversification and yeah. that how important it is. And I think that that really ties into a nice little segue here. Um, in our film, The Wild, of which you are an associate producer, yeah. uh, the folks that would build the proposed pebble wine in the headwaters of this incredible place you're describing here yeah, make a claim that they would only – harm, theoretically, if there was a disaster with their mine site, 0.002% of the fish in Bristol Bay, because it would only harm this one little area in their, in air quotes, little area up near Lake Iliamna. And what we talk about in in the film, and I think it's just so perfectly illustrated in the narrative that you're giving us here today, is that diversity is critical to salmon it's divert it's critical to all life on earth but that 1.002 percent could in fact be the most important part of this ecosystem in a given year or in a given decade Yeah. yeah making the assumption that oh it's just a little system up there and it hasn't done really well for the last 10 years five years whatever yeah is totally erroneous because it Everything in this system, which is still perfect because it's perfectly intact, it is not uh, cut apart by roads or pipelines or culverts or anything else yet, it is entirely dependent upon its diversification. And I, I think that you can't emphasize that enough. So when you're, when you're looking at this issue and you're looking at Pebble and, and, and you're talking about this amongst your friends uh, fellow brothers and sisters out there on the fishing grounds, why is this issue something that has really brought you together? You know, you mentioned earlier about like, "Hey, man, I'm competing against that guy. I, I you know, I'm going to sink his boat." Like, because you're competitive, you're fishermen. But what's incredible is like, not only is it commercial fishermen, but it's commercial fishermen and sport fishermen who have come together and, and tribes and, and government and, and all of them. Yeah, right. Yep. So it's like what is that point of unification about this issue and why is this matter of sustainability in Bristol Bay so important to commercial fishermen? And why do you, and why do you adhere
1: to it so strictly? So I, um, I would call myself a, Worshipper of the wild, you know, people talk about rewilding and I, I left home at 18 and I moved to South America. And at one point I spent three months paddling through the Amazon river in a dugout canoe. And, uh, you know, at one point I spent three months alone on the lost coast of Humboldt County living in a shelter and surfing every day. And, and, I remember when I left the lost coast after three months and I went and visited my brother in new Orleans, I had this conversation with him where I was like, I don't know that I'm going to be able to join society. Like, I don't know that I'm going to be able to assimilate because I'd spent so much time in the pursuit of remote far flung places. Um, and the concept of like, living in a city and having a job and all of that, even though I'm a human being and that seems to be like what we do, I wasn't sure that I would be able to successfully achieve that. Um, And Bristol Bay and discovering Bristol Bay for me was the first time where I was actually able to work in a way that enhanced my worship of the wilderness and the wild and to have found that has saved my soul. I don't know how else I can say it. Um, And simultaneously I've spent most of my adult life. Well, I've been in Bristol Bay for 10 years. I'm 40. That means for 30 years I was heartbroken that nothing was intact. Like I saw activists and I was like, you're wasting your time. Like we lost already. (laughs) Like Why do you care? (laughs) You know, (laughs) after being in the Amazon and like in some of these places that are just like, so I've, I'd only found two really, you know, the, the Pacific, the islands on the Pacific coast of Panama, the lost coast and the Amazon where it wasn't like pretty deeply scarred and damaged by, by humanity's impact on the whole, the the whole, you know, like an ecosystem is a complete thing that will take care of itself. Um, And to that, if I want to, you know, get even more existential, like when we die out as humans, we're going to leave a massive gap for something to fill our place. Like it will be, life will go on and we won't be impeding its evolution anymore. We'll be leaving a giant space for something to fill. All that being said, um, when I got to Bristol Bay and I saw this thing that was whole that I'd never seen before on such a large scale, it really just touched my heart and healed me in a way. It took away my cynicism. Um, it allowed me to be hopeful for the future to the point where, you know, I came there and I was like, I want to have sons that come fish with me here the way fathers and sons have been fishing in this place for thousands of years. Um, and so when the pebble mine became an issue again, uh, shortly after the breach was finished and toured around, you know, 2016, um, for the first time in my life, I decided to become an activist because essentially Bristol Bay had saved my life. It given me a reason to be hopeful that I could be a fully wild, fully integrated human. Um, and that there would be a place that I could bring my children to, and they could bring their children to, to experience that, the bounty that the earth has without us interfering. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of bounty on earth. We've how many billions of people are we feeding, you know? Um, But you can still walk across the backs of salmon in Bristol Bay. Yeah. And uh, so when the threat of pebble mine really came back to the surface in 2016. um, You know, from a selfishness standpoint, it's like, oh, I make money in Bristol Bay. Of course, I want to protect my income. Um, But that's not really it. You know, it's really about how many intact ecosystems do we have left on Earth? And at this point, I think we're smart enough as a species to promote the preservation of what's still completely intact. Like I understand that we have to, we got to live here. We have cities, you know, we have impact and simultaneously like a completely intact wild ecosystem is absolutely worth saving. So that's, that was my motivation to get involved. Um, and that's beautiful, man. And, and,
0: um, and you know, I've seen you in action. We've gone to DC together and um and yeah, it is it is work. It is activism. Um and now you like you said, you're dad. And uh I know you got to take your boys fishing after the commercial fishing season, you guys got to go fly fishing together in Bristol Bay. What was that
1: like and what, what did it mean to you as a dad? I said to my I kept two deckhands with me when my boys came up after the season. We, um, we ran my boat from knack neck across the Kwee up into the noosh and then all the way up the wood river to Lake Alegnakek. And it's one of the few lakes that I have an old slow prop boat. And it's one of the few lakes that you can get an old slow prop boat up into pretty easily. And, uh, you know, we had to dodge a few rocks and got stuck a few times on the way, but we made it off and, and got to Eleknaek, and uh, it, it was. Um, I said to my, I said to my deckhands. I was like, I looked at my boys, and I was like, "Hey guys, we might not have had the best season, but we are highliners in happiness <laughs> because this trip was so incredible, man. Um, I got to put my children on board a boat that you know I've rebuilt, stripped it all the way to a bare hole and put back together again. They know how much work I have put into it." Um, I, I got to initiate them into the oldest tradition we have as humans, you know, like we've been fishing since there's been a shore. Um, so they got, and they got to meet, you know, um, the woman, Marsha Dale that hangs my nets. And, you know, I was actually just going back through and introducing my children to the Sermon on the Mount the other day, talking about the book of Matthew, where Jesus meets, you know, the two brothers on the sea of Galilee and they're mending their nets. (laughs) And I'm like, Hey, you guys learned how to mend net this summer. They've been doing it for a long time. Um, And uh, so the, to be able to bring my children into a tradition that is so much greater than me, you know, a timeline that's ancient, uh, it means a lot. And to have them, you know, pick fish out of a net and we traded our salmon for diesel And then we ran up, took that, ran up the Wood River, got to Lake Aleknagik, and we got to see a lake that was just teeming with fish staging to spawn. I mean, so many millions of fish swam up the Wood River, and you, you know, you could, the lake's crystal clear. So we're driving on the lake, and my boys are standing on the bow of the boat, and there's just thousands and thousands and thousands of salmon below them. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we found we rented a jet skiff from a pretty kind family up there and we ran it up the Agulawak river and we're catching Rambo and grayling. And they really got to see the whole process of like, Hey, this is how we catch them in the nets. and they get past us and they go up into the lakes and this is where they stage. And we got to walk up little teeny tiny creeks and see, you know, sockeye spawning and, and, you know, some of the, some of the, um, the dogs or chums were also spawning as well, and they got to see you know bears picking fish out of the river, and uh, you know eagles eating carcasses of spawned out fish. Um, so that in a in a ten day window, you know they got to see the industry of Bristol Bay and the chandlery and the work that the you know that we we're, we're doing to take care of our boats so that we can go do this every year. And then they got to see, you know, the other side of it to the, the far flung, super remote places where very few humans go and watch these fish spawn in streams that they've been spawning in for longer than I've been here, man. And so as a father to introduce them to all of this, you know, I felt, blessed beyond belief that I could share such an amazing experience of wilding with my children and to be their steward in it. Like what a gift, man. Like in my, if my 40 year old self would have stood with my 19 year old despondent self who felt completely broken and disconnected from the world and unable to interact and unsure of how he was going to be. And he said to him, you're going to give your children this. And I showed him that experience by God, that 19 year old kid would have had a lot of peace in his soul. You know, like I can't believe it, brother. I can't believe that this is my life. Like I'm such a blessed man. I
0: happen to see your, Instagram posts when you were just finishing that and you were just, I could, I could feel the water gushing out of you. I could feel the, the life, the love, the grace about what a perfect blessed week and day, you know, time it was. And I, I saw the images on your kids' faces and I, man, I knew exactly like that, that, place of bliss, that place of contentment where literally you didn't need another thing. It was just apparent. And I I try to make a a rule to not make suppositions about how other people are going to react or what they're thinking. It's it's not my job to do that. It's not my experience, but I can tell you with a a great degree of certainty that your boys are never going to forget that man. Yeah. That, that is a gift that uh, is going to carry on for generations. And you should feel that welling that's happening in your heart right now is justified. Yeah. Thank you, brother. I want to talk about um, another member of your family, your brother, Steve. Uh, He makes an appearance in our film in the wild. And um, a lot of folks out there know him, but some folks don't. Um, he's also a fisherman and the moment that he appears in the wild is, is a really poignant moment for him. And and I think for, for anybody that watches the film. So for, for those of you out there who don't know Steve, Kyle, can you, can you tell us who your brother Steve is and why was that moment that we try to depict in the film with some semblance of grace so important and so poignant for him.
1: Um, So my brother, Steve Gleason, uh, he, he's a giant among men. Um, And he played for the New Orleans Saints for eight years. And then shortly after he retired, he was diagnosed with um, amyotropic lateral sclerosis and he has been living with ALS now for, I want to say 12 years, perhaps. Um, and w- an ALS diagnosis at best is um, uh, a, an extremely accelerated timeline of functional use of your body. So my brother is, 12 years later, alive, hasn't moved a muscle in 10 years. Um, and he hasn't been able to breathe independently for the last, yeah, yeah. 10, about 10 years. Um, and most humans, uh, are dead within two and a half years of their diagnosis. So when he received that diagnosis, he decided to wander as far as he could while he was still ambulatory. And he and his wife, Michelle, drove from New Orleans, Louisiana, to all the way up to Alaska. And um, one of the things that he really, really wanted to do before he lost functional use of his body was catch a salmon on a fly rod. And, uh, and he, he managed to achieve that feat um, literally as he was losing the ability to like, grasp a fishing pole. And, um, and my brother has the same hunger for wildness that I do. His was, I would say his inner savage was channeled more through, um, professional sports. Um, the simulated warfare that is playing in the NFL. Um, and he, my brother's a warrior, man. He's a modern warrior. And, uh, and my wildness went more into the the pursuit of waves, fish, sailing, water, ocean, wilderness. And one of the beautiful ways we connected is that in, in the ways of the wilderness, I was always his guide. Um, and in the ways of society, he was always the guy that opened doors that I shouldn't be in like backstage at Pearl Jam, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But he knew that his time, his opportunity to connect with, with the wilderness was finite. Um, and that was, that was a bit of a, it was a dying man's wish, you know, and fortunately he's still alive, but we didn't know that was going to be the case. And, uh, and he wanted to see, like, there was just a hunger and a yearning in him to go to Alaska and see what's there. And, uh, you know, like that, I meet so many people that are curious about it. I think, you know, there's many, many, many of us that have that hunger, you know, that desire to see what's up there um, in that great northern wilderness. And, uh, and he was able to, you know, check a box. And more than that, that's a very trite way of saying it. Um, I guess Mark, what's hard for me is like, I know how desperately my brother wanted to be on the trip that I just took my kids on. (laughs) So it's, um, he had that moment, uh, and he's, he's had an amazing life and he has many amazing things, but there's a deep there's still a hole in my life where he and I are no longer to be able to be friends the way brothers, the way we used to be. And it's hard. Um, but fortunately I know that at least he knows what it's like, where I go. Cause he's been there and I've been there with him oh. and that, that allows me to have some comfort. Um, I don't know if I answered that how you wanted me to, <laughs> uh, but um oh, man, you're you're telling
0: such a beautiful story today and um I know you really well and I know Steve really well and I know Bristol Bay really well and I'm still just taking a whole new journey with you with with what you're describing and and I know our listeners are as well. Um a couple last notes on um, on Steve in the film um first of all there, there's a film Bearing your family's name, Gleason. Yeah. Documentary. Hey, do you know that I took
1: the film footage and didn't get a credit for it where he caught that fish? (laughs) I didn't even think about it after I saw it, man. I was
0: like, oh, yeah, I took that shot. Rack, rack it up in the long <laughs> list of omissions it's just having uh, a hard time buddy I love you I, well that's what I know man that's what we're, we're here for each other um, it's an amazing film Gleason uh, it's widely available please check it out um, Steve your brother also I didn't get video credits
1: in that one either and I took a bunch of those shots also
0: alright man let's air out all the lines like, let's go <laughs> you hear that uh, he's Steve, also royalties. <laughs> Royalty, please. Um, your brother also won the Congressional Gold Medal two years ago, uh, which is, you know, reserved for a very few amount of citizens in our country. And um, it's so well deserved. Uh, the work that he's doing has never been stronger. Um, I follow him on Twitter. And uh, you, your brother's a freaking, like you said, he is just a giant among men. He, he has grown stronger as the years go on. I mean, he's a sage. Yeah. he's a prophet and um, and uh, I encourage you out there to, to check out Steve Gleason um, in all of the, the social uh, aspects that are out there
1: can I tell and, a quick story about Steve uh-huh. absolutely so uh, one dude sat on his front porch all the way through Hurricane Ida and is still at home he's got a generator running things are good team Gleason's doing a lot of outreach to um, you know the ALS community in Louisiana right now to get them resources to you know keep people alive. So that's really important work. Um, but you know it was a real highlight for him to sit out on his porch. You know they built a little shelter where he could be dry and just like feel the storm, man, because that's that's what he gets to do now. Um, that is epic. And and then you know not too long ago we were having a check in, and uh, I was like, hey man, how's it going? He's like good i i meditated blindfolded all day today and i only needed to ask myself three yes or no questions and i didn't miss being able to move i was like oh that's a pretty good day (laughs) what a dude
0: yeah i i'm just gonna shut up now there's nothing to add on (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, he, he is a dude, he's a, a dear friend and a mention and, you, and your brother and, um, and, and a really amazing part uh, as the film uh, starts to, to wind up in the wild. And uh, folks, if you want to watch the wild, you can go to avaswild.com and click on uh, the wild film and check Steve out and uh, Kyle's amazing camera work, amazing camera work. I <laughs> um, see <laughs> Yeah. So speaking of starting to wrap this rascal up, I mean, we've been talking about this, I think in kind of oblique ways here, but um, we all deal with trauma in our lives at some way or some form or varying degrees of it, but we all, we all, we all do. I mean, life is traumatic coming out of this incredible warm place for nine months and getting getting smacked into the cold and having no idea where you are separated from this cord that you were attached to your mom with. So there's, there's, you know, clearly um, no inference here at all that uh, my trauma is anything like uh, somebody who's experienced intergenerational trauma as an indigenous person, for instance, but it is true that we have all experienced trauma in some way, shape or form. And I think that you've just given a beautiful, example of your brother and how he is, um, transcended and, uh, and transformed it through, through trauma that he's gone through. How about you? Like what is when you were 19 year old and, and now that you're 40 year old, how have you dealt with trauma in your life and how has that evolved to the moment that you're in right now?
1: I need another hour, Mark. well we'll have to do a follow-up yeah uh to to put it as succinctly as i can um essentially i've done a lot of um there's i realized that i think we all come into the world with krishna consciousness meaning like like we know our divinity Um, we know our connection and then we forget through time. Um, and I've done a lot of work going back to the places where I, you know, the, the wounds, the wounds were developed and literally like taking that little one and, and holding that little one and blessing that little one and giving him assurance that he, he did the best he could in that time and that we made it and, and let him know that I'm safe now And that he doesn't need to work so hard anymore. Like we got this man. Mm. Like now I'm a 40 year old man and I'll take care of you. You don't have to take care of me anymore. And so I've gone back like pretty regularly and visited those trauma points in my life and held that little me literally in my arms visualizing like, you know, giving them the love that they wanted at that time. And letting them know that they did the job that they needed to do to make us safe. And that's gotten me to the point now where I am holding my own children in my arms. And when I put them to sleep at night, I ask them, how do you feel? And they tell me I feel safe and loved. And so I'm hoping to create the association for them with me that they have a dad that is a place of safety and love. Um, and there's nothing more cathartic than raising children that are, that know that they're safe (laughs) and that have secure attachment to their parents. Um, it's a, it's an amazing gift that I'm able to live in this life. I have right relationship with my children. And, uh, and I know that they, they're growing and in, growing into the healed beings that I did not have the opportunity to be. So, um, it's this life is a gift, man. And I'm, and I take the opportunity of fatherhood really seriously, uh, and playfully. Um, mm-hmm. and my children really, Uh, they, I can say without a doubt, I know that they are loved and they, they, I'm blown away the number of times a day of their own volition. They tell me that they love me. Mm. And for everyone that says, Oh, wait till they become teenagers. I have a teenager and he still does that. So (laughs) I'm like, wow, maybe I'll have to wait till he's 20 and then I'll stop. But (laughs) I don't know, man, so far so good.
0: Well, you're doing something right, man. And, um, I'm looking forward to meeting those boys one of these days. Um, and I love what you said about playfully, you know, like recently I was looking at the root word of, uh, human, hum, humor, humus of the earth mm-hmm. and humor, having that in embedded into our experience on this planet. I think, not only makes it bearable, but it is a gift that we give each other. Mm-hmm. So I uh, amen to that. You're right. We're going to need another session. So we're going to, we're going to plan on that. We're going to check in from time to time. Sure. But on, on the wrap up today, um, I I promised you and our audience. And so I'm going to make good on that, that you are a master of one type of fishing and you know, a lot of folks get, in their head. I've, I've certainly been there myself Of in this purist mentality that I've got to catch only rainbows on a dry fly on a perfect fall day in the perfect river. Like fishing is fishing and it is connecting if you're doing it right. So c- give us, give us the thumbnail of where you are best as a fisherman and why that makes you feel so connected. Um, yes. Okay.
1: Happily. So fishing from my rowboat around the Marin islands, uh, on San Francisco Bay. Um, I will occasionally have a day where I will catch a striped bass from a boat I built with a rod I made and a fly that I tied myself. And, uh, you know, if it's kind of nice when it all comes together like that, um, But the place that I am the best fisherman is a spot called Kent Lake by my house. And uh, you have to ride your bike about seven miles to get into it. And I don't mind telling people about Kent Lake because nobody's going to work that hard to get to it. (laughs) So very few people go there. Um, And I – for a a long time, it was the wildest place I could get to in Marin. And I would go back in there and – you know, on a good day, catch 30 largemouth bass on a crawdad jig and a bait casting rod and just have a hoot, man. So uh, my favorite fishing is the, the fish that I can catch however they need to be caught. <laughs> so um, sometimes it's on a dry fly in a perfect Alaskan stream. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's with my uh with a poke pole in a tidal cave on the coast of Marin county and sometimes it's with a big net in the middle of so it's all fishing man i love it all
0: and it's all part of the mystery and that's what keeps us coming back all right so we're going to wrap this rascal up here but um we do this little bonus round at the end if you've been listening you'll know what's coming uh so Kyle, this is all facetious, so we're just making up a big fantasy here. And in in this time where things are so tinder dry, and um, as I knock on wood here, but just in the imagination, in the abstract, let's just say your house were on fire and you could only bring out one physical thing. Uh, Your your family's already out, pets are out, living beings are already out. But if you could only bring one physical thing, what's that thing?
1: Mm. My wife's altar. There's a deliberate thought process. I'm
0: just gonna let that rest. Yes, I let that rest. And for what it is, that's I think that's a, a fine answer. Absolutely. And it's unique. No one has ever answered that to this point. All right. Let's go to the more metaphysical. There's two two things about two traits about you, two metaphysical traits about you. Like generosity or things like that. Sure. What are those two things that you pull out of the fire and take with you?
1: Oh, um, yeah. Two traits of mine that I need to keep no matter what. Um, one, I had a dear friend say to me on my 40th birthday, you love undefendedly. So I think that's probably pretty important to keep. And then the other one is my need to be wild.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Is there anything you'd leave in the fire to be burned up, purified?
1: Yeah. My fear. Yeah. Yeah. That is I, such I'm a I'm going to revise one. that statement. My unnecessary fear. Okay. Good point. Sometimes
0: fear is necessary for survival, but yes, I, it's, it's so true. Fear is just such a root of all things malevolent. Um, Kyle Gleason, you are a dear friend and uh, what a great conversation today. Um, If folks want to check you out on social media, and I I know you do that a little bit, but if there's, if there's anybody, you know, anywhere that you want to have send folks to, to
1: check out the things that are important to you, where would that be? Uh, Teamgleason.org. And that's probably the big one. Teamgleason.org. and then the other one was hit me up on Instagram if you want to go fish. Uh, KG and the fam is my handle. Um, you'll see some pretty amazing pictures of the trip that my boys and I just took. Yeah.
0: I, I highly recommend a little uh, trip down that lane. All right, Kyle. Uh, till, till next time. We're, and here's an incentive to come back. We got to hear about your story of the shark at Sunday. <laughs> So, as as inviting as that is for you, uh, dear listener, let me tell you, this is a story for the ages. So, we'll have to tune in next time for uh, part two of the Kyle Gleason series. So, for today, brother, thank
1: you for being here and we'll see you down the trail. Hey, Mark. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How do you say? Thank you for listening to say what you love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water, and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land, waters, and other inhabitants today.